From the studios of Teeing It Up in the Swamps of Jersey, this is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling for Monday, January 13th, 2020. And we've been trying to do this for a while, and I am so happy to welcome ESPN lead soccer analyst Taylor Twelman to Teeing It Up. Taylor, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It, 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 we finally got this done. It's only taken us about six months. Yes, exactly. So, of course, Taylor's on here to talk soccer, right? Nope, he's yeah. on here to talk golf. Um, and before we get to that, though, a lot of people like you have these interviews and they want to promote their foundation, which is not why he's on, by the way, but this is just me trying to um, um, help the cause because it's such, a, such an important cause he's doing. And they put it at the end and then you're up against a hard timer. That's unfair. So let's do this up front. Your foundation, the Think Taylor organization, I know it means the world to you, so tell the folks about it. Yeah, it, pretty much, Jeremy, it comes down to uh, my career ended right in the prime of my career due to a uh, concussion. I played the next six, eight weeks after that, and my career was over, blink of an eye. Um, and as I struggled with recovery... Uh, during that process, I realized that if I'm the MVP in Major League Soccer, if I'm the leading goal scorer with the New England Revolution and I can't get proper treatment, then what are the tens of thousands of uh, kids and athletes around our country, what are they doing for treatment? What are they doing for answers? So becoming a voice, I started the foundation, thinktaylor.org. Um, and long story short, I created a... Uh, kind of like a call to action so to speak a pledge for those people to take and for kids to take for parents to take and it basically just comes down to i pledge to be honest on my signs and symptoms of concussions i pledge to be educated on the signs and symptoms of concussions and i pledge to be supportive of anyone that gets a concussion we had 4.5 million kids take that pledge in 2019 and a lot of people will ask me, why am I doing it in soccer? Why am I doing it with the youth? Well, first off, you get, you know, you can hit the female part of it, which is a huge um, part of traumatic brain injury. And girls are getting concussions uh, as much, if not more, than boys. And more importantly, if I educate the kids, then the parents can get the hell out of the way. Coaches can get the hell out of the way. And the adults will stop making stupid decisions regarding that, that one brain that they're kid has so we've seen progress you know i think carson wentz over the past weekend jeremy um you know coming out of the game because he had symptoms and he felt it uh i i think we're talking about a monumental moment of where this is going and again i think the more educated athletes are which they are now as pros but i don't worry about the adults i worry about the kids and i think we've made some progress right and i believe what the science shows uh, so far at least is that it's those um injuries that happen when they're kids in high school and travel and they're playing six seven eight games in a tight time span and so much of the impetus is on winning or making your high school team or college scholarships and it's not on your long-term health that that's actually where the damage is being done and not so much in college and pro sports if i'm correct absolutely absolutely i mean look at the ncaa one of my biggest gripes about the ncaa and how they treat men and women soccer players is that you're playing an entire season 20 games in two and a half months and yet you're worried about the student athlete 
Get out of here. You can't be if you've got to play, if he or she's got to play a game Friday, Sunday, you know, Wednesday, Saturday, and whatnot, and he or she gets a concussion. So there's a lot of things getting in the way of trying to make things proper for these athletes. And my whole basis of this is make the athlete educated, help the athlete get educated, and let he or she make the decision and not anyone else trying to get in the way of that. Um, I absolutely love that. ThinkTaylor.org for those who would like more um, information on that. All right, so so Taylor's with us to talk golf, and here's how this happened. Um, I saw you tweeting about golf. I saw that your Twitter cover photo was of a golf course. I said, that's cool. Let's have him on. And then you did the sports media podcast with Richard Deitch, and I heard your family story, and I'm like, whoa, wait a second. Now I have to have Taylor yeah. on. This is crazy. So I don't know if it's better to start with your family in golf or you in golf. I, I would well, think I those think, two I are think, probably intertwined. I think they're the same, Jeremy, because I think, you know, I often joke, I joked with you when uh, I, we first started chatting that, uh, I'm a golfer that played soccer. I'm not a soccer player that plays golf. I grew up in, with the sport. Um, you know, some people will laugh. They grew up the country club, and I think at times I show that part of me, but it is what it is. I, golf has always been in the family. My, my mom's side of the family, um, her younger brother, Jay Delsing, was on tour uh, for over 20 years. Uh, her grandfather, you know, her dad, my grandfather, played uh, professional baseball, won two World Series with the Yankees, played uh, in the majors 11 years, and yet the only thing he did when he was done playing was what? He golfed, obviously because of his son and trying to get him involved and trying to get him um, better educated and better prepared, but more so he loved it. Uh, and, and then there's a second you know, brother, uncle on that side for me that is good. So when people ask me about golf and family, we all love it. Now, we also love uh, gambling, right? So I, I knew what an over-under was at, <laughs> at eight or nine, and so <laughs> golf and that kind of come hand-in-hand. Hand. I knew match play. I knew NASCARs. I knew a lot of that stuff a lot sooner than uh, some of my friends, which it just is what it is. I, I thoroughly enjoy it. Um, for me, Jeremy, the most important thing about golf is it's not the bigger, faster, stronger person. You know, in so much of sports is that. Right. Uh, yet you show up on the golf course and that guy or girl can look like a complete bum and there are two, you know, there are plus two handicap. I, I love that aspect and I love the fact that it's you against nature and not against anyone else. There's something really unique about that that I, I thoroughly love and, and I have from, you know, age 10 on. And, and just to um, let the people out there know, Jay Delsing played at UCLA alongside Corey Pavin, Steve Pate, Tom Pernice, and Duffy Waldorf. He has two, uh, two wins on what's now the Corn Ferry Tour, um, and, and his best finishes on the PGA Tour were a T2 at the 93 New England Classic and the 95 FedEx St. Jude Classic. So... Uh, a very storied career, and also finished T33 at the 92 U.S. Open. So, What's amazing about that, Jeremy, though, is for, for the listeners, is that that college team never won. And... What? Wow. And they never won. And Jay Delsing was the number one guy on that team for a long time. Wow. That is... That, 
that that's where it gets really crazy when people talk about now obviously the number one player on that team changes and it's fluid you know that yeah than anyone but for a good majority of his college career he was highly talked about he was the guy and it just goes to show you right you, you go on tour and he had many many opportunities where if the final round was a 65 and not a 69 you and i are talking about probably two or three wins right and, yeah and, um but he's also extremely humble. He's also extremely grateful to one Tiger Woods because uh, I, I think that generation of the Corey Pavins, Steve Page, Jay Delting, Tom Pernice, you can go up and down that line of all those guys. They're not making the money that they made if Tiger didn't come on tour, even if it was on the back end of that you know career for those guys. Yep, absolutely. And to that point, uh, Jay's two uh, uh, Corn Ferry Tour wins were in 2001 and 2002, which is obviously after Tiger came on the scene and, and uh, really took the sport to new heights. So, Taylor, for you, was golf a bigger part of your pre-soccer life? Because you had 30 um, caps with the U.S., nine international goals. You had all these records which you sent uh, 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 set with the um, revolution, all all that time in MLS, was the big part of your golfing life pre-major um, big-time soccer or post-big-time soccer, and it's kind of twilight now, post-09? That's a very interesting question, Jeremy. I, I think um, I'm going to say post, but I have the... It, it's an interesting story, and I won't bore, uh, bore everyone with the length of it, but here's the fact. Pre-soccer, so in St. Louis, high school soccer is massive. It's huge. I am playing in a junior event uh, late July. Or, no, sorry, excuse me, early August, first weekend of August. And we're, and it's with, so I'm in eighth grade, and it's with freshmen, uh, sophomores in high school. Uh, and I'm playing in the event, and uh you know, you're getting ready, you're ready for your tea time, you're getting ready, and some father and kid came up and said, hey, congrats on going to St. Louis University High School, are you going to tryouts tomorrow? And I, my dad wasn't there, so I was like, tryouts for what? And they're like, well, the soccer tryouts are tomorrow. Needless to say, I end up winning the junior golf event. <laughs> I get in the car, and my dad goes, I can't believe you just won that golf tournament. And I said, Dad, did you know soccer tryouts are tomorrow? I would have missed soccer tryouts because we were under the assumption that freshmen can't go out for varsity. Wow. Uh, needless to say, I, I made varsity uh, that year, ended up starting as a freshman, which was the, I think, second freshman to ever start in high school history there. So it, it, it's funny how golf indirect, and I tell that story not to brag, obviously, but it, there is value to that story because golf, started my soccer career and then when I went to Germany played there for two and a half uh, years that was extremely difficult because golf wasn't there I had my clubs with me I tried my very best to find that um, but it was frowned upon you know I, I know some of the listeners will be footy fans look at Gareth Bale at Real Madrid and how much criticism he's taken uh, for being a, a golfer that loves golf and finds golf and whatnot. So I ended up really not playing golf until I came back to the United States. But to answer your question, it's post-playing career that I 
you know, got a full-time handicap that I actually started studying my swing and looking mm-hmm. video and seeing if I can improve, where that's where the addiction came in. But it's also, Jeremy, it's the only thing I could do. I can't work out because of my concussion limitations. Oh, wow. So walking 18 holes, that's my workout. Like, there's some real uh, emotional relief for me playing the game of golf. And not so much that I'm walking four and a half, five miles, but also that I'm competing. Uh, you, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's been built up in my golf game that's actually helped me, I think, move on with the rest of my life, for lack of a better phrase. Talking with ESPN lead soccer analyst Taylor Twelman about his uh, golf addiction. And what's interesting about that, Taylor, is I think a lot of people think, okay, your whole career ended because of head injuries. Now he's at ESPN. He's calling soccer. He's flourishing. He gets to work alongside wonderful partners in John Champion, in Ian Dark, all these other people. And yet you're still feeling the effects every single day. And it's a place that most people probably wouldn't think to find you at the golf course, which is the most peaceful, happy place for you. And to that end, golf is a really frustrating sport. It drives all of us nuts. So how do you balance this notion of golf's the thing that I can do, it's my exercise, it's my release, with the most frustrating sport maybe on the planet? Yeah, (laughs) it really is, isn't it? Like. You can have days where you hit every fairway, every green, and you shoot, you know, three, four over, and then you can have days where you hit every tree, you're in every bunker, and you're like, wait a minute, what did I shoot? Huh, weird. That's part of the reason why I love the game of golf. You can also play the same golf course 100 times a year, which most of us do, and every if the course is wonderful and the game is what it is, you can have a lot of different rounds, and you can play different every single day. That part I love. Obviously, Jeremy, if, if I'm on this podcast and I am a 10, 11, 12 handicap, I don't know if I'm putting into the amount of time that I want to just because I'd be like, all right, it is what it is. I'm not improving. I saw... With, and part of it is the addiction of trying to improve. That was the same addiction I had as a soccer player. I think that's the same addiction all of us have listening to this. Whatever our professions are, you're, you're trying to push to another level, whatever that level may be in whatever you do. I think golf's very unique like that. Now, it's, it, it's interesting because what Jeremy thinks is a good golf swing and what works for him can be, you know, almost 90 degrees different than what I think. And that's why I think it's, Unique. You got to find what works for you. How consistent you can be. Um, I enjoy that. I really do. Now, a big part of what I do with golf is I love games. You know, I love showing up at a golf course. There's 12 guys. Hey, what's the game today? Let's play. Here we go. Um, and I love the gambling part of it. Not because of the gambling, but because of that competitive juice that. Jeremy, not to harp on it, I lost that. You know, when my career ended, I was on the verge of going to the 2010 World Cup, going to England to make, you know, 8 to $10 million a year, you know, over four years. Right. That's a, t- that's a tough pill to swallow, right? So that this golf and that kind of thing, it, it's actually really saved me on just being, hey, showing up, and I'm not a TV analyst. I'm not a former soccer player. I'm not who I am. I'm actually... You know, a guy that's a plus one handicap that's given out a lot of strokes. And 
you know, here's the other thing too, which is that I would have to think that, you know, there's a lot of athletes out there who have problems when they leave the game. And, and these are people who are healthy because they just, now they're sitting around the house, they get restless, they don't know what to do, they can't find their passion. I think the fact that you knew what your passion would be after soccer has probably helped. And then, as you said, you, you walk up to the golf course and it's like, hey, what's the game today? And now competitive Taylor yeah. turns back on. And I would think maybe some of your best rounds are in those competition days versus Absolutely. if you just go out there on, on a random af- you know, Wednesday afternoon to play nine holes. Absolutely, Jeremy. Uh, There's no doubt about it. I I am extremely fortunate with the, you know, hundreds of athletes that will call, text me over the, you know, the mental anguish of being retired and what you do. I I never in my right mind thought I was going to be a TV commentator and be a media person. I hated the media uh, playing. Hmm. And yet when I found that and on top of that, it allowed me some free time to you know, get after the golf realm. I mean, I, I'm a ve- very fortunate, and I'm telling you, it came at, came to me at a very, very dark time. It was scary. I don't think anyone truly knows what post-concussion life is like until you live it, until you see it. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. But you said it best. There's, you know, I... I, I I'm 40 years old, and you show up now at a golf course. I feel like I'm 18, 19 years old, or even at times. That 14-year-old kid that won that last of junior event that he ever played in, because all it is is, hey, let's tee it up. What's the game? All right, let's have some fun. Uh, and it's four hours of walking around. There's banter. It's no different. You know, it's a lot like uh, the first quarter of my life, first half of my life was of just. Uh, being in a locker room, being around a team and whatnot, but it's you against the course. And that, to me, Jeremy, I think is understated with the game of golf. I think that is the most unique thing in all sports. It is the most unique thing, in my opinion, and I'll argue with anyone about that, just because uh, it's not about who you're playing with. It's not about who you're playing against. It's ultimately, can you beat nature? And I just think there's something very unique about that. And to your point about how different people can make it work in different ways, look at Matthew Wolf's golf swing versus Adam Scott's golf swing. I mean, those two things could not be further apart, and yet they both get it done. But how refreshing is that, though, Jeremy, for someone like yourself in the golf world that loves the game? Like, it just goes to show you that, that that's unique. It, it's, how often do you see that on the basketball court? You're not going to see that much of an awkward jump shot, are you? Yeah. No, you're not. And Are you going to see a quarterback that awkward? Yeah, we've seen Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson have a little bit of a sidewinder, and it's unique, but it's not that far off. Matthew Wolf swing is literally what every teacher for the last 20 years has told you not to do. Exactly. And I love it. I yep, am. including my swing coach. Yep, you're way across the line. you got to get that back on plane. <laughs> I love everything about it. Yeah. Uh, talking with ESPN lead soccer analyst Taylor Twelman here on Teeing It Up. All right. In uh, Two years ago, you did a summer, quote-unquote, internship with Scott Van Pelt talking the World Cup. And there's nobody, I think, who's more addicted to golf at ESPN, maybe besides you, than, um, than SVP. During that internship, during those meetings, during all that time leading up to the show, how much golf talk took place? Uh, about 95% of it. <laughs> I mean, I mean we, Scott, 
first off, Scott is a very, very, very talented TV commentator. He's an interesting human being, but he's also one of the he's one of the best dudes just to be around. And for the core of his, you know, broadcasting career and beginning of it to be based on golf was yeah. so unique. Um, you know, we we could talk about so many. And the best part about that whole conversation was his entire staff. Nobody really likes golf. Yes. Nobody, nobody really wants to talk. So for an hour of sitting in there, we're prepping the show and we're doing stuff. And obviously I'm coloring, using crayons. For those of you that are listening, uh, ESPN did not have enough rights given to us to show highlights, which is completely asinine on Fox's part. So Scott and I, uh, mainly Scott was like, you know, why don't we draw the World Cup, and we did hashtag draw the World Cup, and obviously it went viral, and we had a blast with it. But as I'm coloring and using markers, you know, we're arguing about Jordan Speak. Does he have the yips? And can Bubba Watson get out of his way mentally? And and Scott just was, um, it was an awesome, awesome uh, time for me. One, because I love the show, and I'm a huge fan of his and his staff. But two, I'll talk sports with anyone um and, and i always enjoyed that they, we, golf was a huge part of our friendship yeah and and there's someone in svp who also enjoys that whole gambling playing for something competitive side of golf going back to when he was growing up so absolutely but he also too jerry this is the cool thing that was you know he was on the verge of going because that's his vacation right around the world cup final and stuff and he's like dude i'm you know, he's talking about what he, what he's trying to work on and why he's got why is he yanking the ball and hitting it always to the left and all that. I love that, that, that stuff. I you know it can bore some people to death, like some people on his staff. Uh, Scott and I in the studio could have done that for probably about five hours. Right. Um, so all right. So let's now transition to a little bit of soccer. For those of you who want to hear Taylor's thoughts on VAR. And instant replay in soccer. Go to go to the conversation he had with Richard Deitch. That is not the point of this podcast. So if you want to hear those thoughts, um, head there. Now, what I want to know about VAR is we've seen in golf the use of video in all sorts of realms. Now there's rules that the USGA has put in. And we see again, most recently two weeks ago, or, or sorry, last month with Patrick Reed, and the use of video once again correctly dinging him for breaking the rules. The video, in theory, video review in golf, which has been there forever, is supposed to help figure out correct drops, find egregious errors, and fix them, and some other stuff. And that's expanded. VAR in soccer was supposed to be goal, no goal, and now that's expanded. So as a diehard soccer fan, watcher, and commentator, and now as a diehard golfer who watches golf you know, so much and sees the way video is used, where are you on this whole video-assisted replay concept in total right now? Oh, boy. So, Jeremy, let, let, for the listeners at home, are we talking about the Patrick Reed video? Yes, we, and we, just the use, use of, of vid video. Yeah, and just the use of video in golf in general. I mean, if you want to go back to Tiger at Augusta and, and yeah. you know, from... And, listen, I, I think someone calling home from home on their couch... The way Tiger Woods and Augusta happen, I, I think that's a that's a very 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 um, slippery slope. If you ask me, if that's how we're going to do this. Now, the one thing about golf 
that is more unique than any other sport uh, is it's so so much of it is built on integrity. And let, yeah. let me explain that real quick. If I am offside and I score a goal in soccer, or if I'm offside and I score a goal in hockey, or I'm offside in, in football and I get a sack and the referee or the official doesn't call it, that's not on the athlete to change the game and raise his or her hand and say, I'm sorry, sorry, I was egregious there. That, <laughs> that was a foul. In golf, it is. Yeah. In golf, you're holding yourself to... Uh, to a standard. Now, I'm going to be. I'm on the record as this, and I'm going to stay on the record. I think golf has to find a way to simplify the rule book. I think it's absolutely ridiculous you can play a sport at that in the rule book every single time. I played a match this year. Uh, we we were in a four ball for a little Ryder Cup type of thing, and there was some good money on the line, and we had a junior and well, kind of mid am that qualified. We had very good golfers in this foursome. Jeremy, all four of us didn't know a rule. So my point is, is that if you simplified the game, now that does, that's, I'm not talking about Patrick Reed, but I'm talking about in general. I think golf at times overcomplicates things. And I think you lose the, especially at the amateur level, you know, professional fine, I think I can see an argument of why it needs to be as complicated. But the video of what you're talking about regarding Patrick Reed, I mean, that was as agreed. And he can say whatever he wants, that he knew what he was doing. Yep. He knew exactly what he was doing. Um, That ball, that wasn't even a half. That ball was so plugged. Uh, He knew exactly that if he moved a little sand away from behind the ball, then his, you know, Angle coming in, he could hit ball first, and that way he would get more out of it. No different than a plug lie next to the green, except this one was a little bit steeper and obviously further away. Uh, I'm okay with it if it's done by the broadcast and there's a PJ Tour official in the truck doing it. I'm yep, which is now the um, rule. Yeah, okay with someone calling in from their couch the way they did with Tiger. That that to me is just like it, listen. Was Tiger wrong? She absolutely was. But don't tell me, like, that's how we're going to call things. Because if that's how we're going to do things, then we're going to be in trouble. Because everybody's going to be reviewing everything on their iPhones. And then I, I just think golf would be smart with the amount of cameras they have there. Uh, why not put a PJ Tour official inside? But, again, that is really going against the essence of the game, which is you are in charge of keeping the integrity of the game. Which is fascinating about this because... They have outlawed calling from home, and there is now supposed to be an official in the truck. But the point that I've wondered about, and obviously you can't answer this, this would be something for the PGA Tour, is with all these digital streams and things like PGA Tour Live, is there somebody actually watching every single thing? And what happens if there is an official back at PGA Tour headquarters who sees something just because they happen to be tuning in in that moment? And could that be helping the officials on site? There is a gray line there where I think in soccer, at least with VAR, it's, okay, this is our ruling, this is our decision, it's done, period, goodbye. Agreed. Um, Agreed. Whether you like VAR or not, at least there's some finality to it. Because right now we have a problem where, and take the issue with Lexi Thompson a couple of years ago, oh, you, you you can reopen a round after the scorecard's completed. There, there's just something that seems wrong about that. And to your point, 
It takes away from the essence of the game. It confuses everybody. The, the 2019 rules process to, to, to simplify things, I think, has temporarily confused some people because it's paralyzed them. Absolutely. And Jeremy, you just hit the, you said something that very few people are talking about. It is spot on. If you're going to do that, it has to be every round of golf. It has to be every round, every match, every tournament. And that's not true. You and I both know there's not the same amount of cameras on a, you know, a, a whatever you want to talk about. Like, what, what is it, Kern Ferry? Uh, I yeah, Corn Ferry Tour. Corn Ferry. I, I always want to say web.com. I know. Over. We're um, all stuck. Right, right. So, like, you look at that, and it, it's got to be consistent. Like, at least with VAR in my sport, at least with, uh, you know, replay and all that in football and even basketball, it's the same for every game. It's not that way for the tur- for golf. Like, uh, you and I have both watched golf tournaments where, like, whoa, there's, like, five cameras total at this tournament. Yes. Yes. Right? So that doesn't work for me. Um, I, I struggle with video in, in golf. Uh, and for those of you listening, <laughs> yeah, I think Jeremy would agree. But if we think that Lexi Thompson, Patrick Reed are the only instances where someone has tried to skirt the rules and the laws of the game, I think we're all being very naive. Um, but the way Patrick Reed has done it and his reputation, like the Lexi Thompson one to me, I don't know about you, Jeremy, but I watched it. I had to pit my stomach because I don't think she was intentionally trying to do that. I am with you 100%. I think Patrick knew exactly what he was doing, and I think Lexi just, whether she was you know, thinking about the next putt or thinking about why she about missed putt, it. Thinking he, about how much the putt meant and, and where she was, and was like, oh, wait a minute, i, I got to move my marker back. Like, it, But Patrick Reed's reputation supersedes anything he tries to do, and he's got the reputation from being in college of being that guy. Yeah. I, I struggle with the video, Jeremy. I struggle struggle with the video in golf mainly because it's not going to be consistent from January 1st to December 31st of that season. And now you're talking about, you know, it all depends. If you're doing it where all the cameras are on you, like at Augusta, or no cameras are on you in in New Orleans or something of that nature, that's not fair to the athlete either. That's not fair to the competition um, I think golf has some real discussions on how to fix that because that one I struggle with immensely. And it's going to be very interesting about the Masters and the players this year with cameras capturing every shot. How do you keep this equal? Because Tiger's going to have way more attention on him than than you know someone like JT Poston. And yes. you know no. it, it's just an unfair playing field in, in that regard. And it's it, it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Talking with talking with Taylor Twelman here on Teeing It Up. Two more uh, uh, quick hitters for you. Um, first of all, U.S. Men's National Team. There's a law, I think, in the books that every interview you do, someone has to ask you about when the U.S. Men's National Team will rise up. So I'll put it this way. Golf is going through this metamorphosis right now with the Wolves, Morikawas, the Hovlands, this next wave, the post-Justin Thomas wave, this next wave of 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds coming up and and playing sensational golf right out of the gate. Is there enough young blood in the system for the U.S. men's national team to succeed in 2022? That's a good question. I think 2026, when the United States, Mexico, Canada host, it's going to be the real barometer because the Christian Pulisic's, Weston McKinney's, um, you know, these, 
you know, Gio Reyna, I can go through up and down the list of young American players that are applying their craft abroad. I think that's an interesting barometer in 2022. I know we're doing this in 2020. I think it's going to be a little bit more difficult. And the truth of the matter is there is talent in the United States. The crux of the discussion is why isn't that talent at 16, 17, 18 transferring itself to the United States men's national team by the time they're 22, 23, 24. And that, that's the billion-dollar question, Jeremy. I, the talent is capable of the United States doing well. Now, most of us, if not all of us listening to this podcast or having this conversation that are American blood will say, well, are we going to win it or not? That We're not winning a World Cup anytime soon, but can we compete at the level of trying to get to the round of 16 quarterfinals. I can't believe I'm having this conversation because I feel like we've said this for a long time. But when you fail to qualify for the World Cup in 2018, you now hit the reset button. Uh, There's a lot of pressure on the United States Soccer Federation, uh, not only with the men's national team, but also, Jeremy, to develop. You just said it in golf. There's younger players coming through, and a big part of that is Tiger and his influence on the game, and now there's athletes playing golf as opposed to golfers only. And, you know, Brooks Kepka is another great example. You know, Christian Pulisic's worth over $75 million playing at Chelsea. Weston McKinney's playing at Chelsea. You've got Americans young playing over there. When they come and play for the United States, now what do you get out of them? That's a big question. And you can't win a soccer game with just one or two players. Because if that was the case, Argentina would have won the last three World Cups because Messi's arguably the greatest player this game has ever seen, and yet they've lost in finals, and he's never won a major trophy with Argentina. Soccer's complicated. There's more nuance to it. Um, I, the talent's here. It's just from 17 to 21, the United States is really struggling developing those players. Give Major League Soccer a little bit more time, and who knows, maybe we'll see some in 2026. But I think 2022 World Cup is going to be they qualified, uh, and they're going to see where the chips fall. Fall, But I think 26 is a better judge. Sunday, March 1st on ESPN is when this new season of MLS uh, kicks off with a doubleheader beginning with Seattle and Chicago at 3 p.m. Eastern on ESPN, ESPN Deportes, and the ESPN app. Um, so final thing. Everybody has that shot that keeps them coming back. Everybody has that golf moment in their career that they just remember. And when it gets bad, they just think to that shot and that moment. What is that for you? Oh, my crux, my issues, uh, my addiction right now is anything from 55 to, say, 90 yards. It is the shot that keeps me up at night. It's the shot when I hit it well. Uh, it's as if I just scored a, you know, 25-yard bomb that wins the game 2-1. It's the shot that changes it. If I was better at that shot, if I was more uh, effective with that shot and efficient, um, consistent, uh, then you and I are talking about maybe, you know, a plus four, plus five handicap. That, I, I have that shot, Jeremy. <laughs> I have that shot three, four, five times around, and one out of four I'm hitting inside six feet where you and I both know if you're going to make any kind of dough and any kind of living, 
that's three out of four. That's four out of four with those guys. I, I love the shot. I'm addicted to it. If I could practice it for four hours a day, I would. It's just the shot that keeps me up at night as well. I had on Saturday a half sandwich from 86, I think it was. Hard left to right wind, and I just struck it perfectly. It started at the left edge of the green, and the wind just took it to six feet all the way to a right pin, and it's like that is why we play the game for those pure moments. When it is, you because, did. Jeremy, everyone sits there and say, hits driver off the... Listen, that's fine, but it, the truth of the matter is to make a real incremental change to your handicap and to your game, it's, it's 90 yards and in. Yeah. If you can get up and down from 90 yards and in, what? I, I'm going to be fair. Say 65 to 70% of the time. Dude, you're talking five, six strokes off your handicap. And not only that, you're you're talking more birdies, more yeah. pars. Your your pace of play suddenly picks up. Um, it's a whole different ball game when you have those things. Taylor Twelman is the lead soccer analyst for ESPN. He is also the founder of the Think Taylor Foundation. Sorry, Think Taylor Organization. For more, go to thinktaylor.org. Taylor, I'm so glad we did this. Thank you for coming on Teeing It Up. I really appreciate it. Uh, Jeremy, this is awesome, my man. I appreciate it. Uh, and thank you all for listening to this edition of Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling.